All right, why don't we get us, have our seats? I have a friend who is a very loving and kind individual, very, very nice person, but they have worked in customer service most of their life. And so he has an expression, which is, I love people, but man, people are the worst. Anybody work in customer service who can say an amen to that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I looked up a couple of very silly customer service stories that I thought I'd share with you this morning just to uh, highlight how, how people can be so crazy. So the first one is here. It says, the customer says, hi, I'd like vanilla ice cream with peanut butter cups mixed in, please. And the server says, okay, is that all for you? And the customer says, yes. And just so you know, I'm allergic to peanuts. Can you make sure it's nut-free? And the server says, uh, you just ordered peanut butter cups in your ice cream. And the customer says, well, I thought you guys could do allergy-safe ice cream. The sign says, you can make sure my food is allergy-safe. <laughs> Typical customer. And he says, well, yeah, but you need to order it without the peanuts first. <laughs> like, you can't make it allergy-safe. Um, typical customer. Second one uh, is uh, the, the server says, hi, what can I get for you today? The customer says, yeah, I'd like a cheeseburger with no cheese and some fries. So the server says, okay, so you'd like a hamburger combo with fries. That'll be $7.40. And the customer says, no, no, I don't want a hamburger. I want a cheeseburger with no cheese. And the person says, okay, so a hamburger. Customer says, no, no, I want a hamburger. I don't want a hamburger. I want a cheeseburger minus the cheese. And then there's a little note from the person who wrote in this little story saying, cheeseburgers, whether I enter in no cheese or not, are always a dollar more than hamburgers. And so the server says, so you want to pay a dollar extra for a cheeseburger, but you want no cheese. And the customer says, yes, is that so hard? So the server says, no, sir, here's a cheeseburger with no cheese and fries totals $8.54. And the customer, very satisfied, says, much better, much better. This is just one of thousands of customer service stories. If you go online, I could read those uh, all day. They're funny. Um, just how crazy people can be sometimes, right? And sometimes we're those crazy people, but it's usually those people are crazy. And so it's, it's really interesting that now we are getting to this part of the Who series that I think is especially hard. Because we started with who is God, and then in some ways that was easy, right? He's great. He's awesome. There's a lot in the Bible about him. No problem. We get it. He's awesome. And then we talked about who are we, and that had some negative parts, certainly, but it had a great stuff, great stuff about us being made in his image. And so, you know, at the end of the day, that was really encouraging, too. And then even last week, we started on this, who are we to love? And we started talking about loving, loving God, and while that's not always easy, yet God is so good and he's so gracious and merciful and loving. So it really is not so hard to think about loving and loving God. And then we get to this week. We're supposed to love people. People. Let's look at what Jesus says in this greatest commandment that we started reading last week. In Matthew 22, verse 36, it says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And I think it's interesting that he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't really define who the neighbor is. Now, we do have some scriptures and other places where Jesus helps us understand who's the neighbor, but it's not a specific person or a specific type of person. It's not just believers or unbelievers or neighbors or friends or family. It's everybody. We're supposed to love everybody. 
And yet it was as interesting as I was beginning to prepare for this and I was looking in the scriptures for all the scriptures about loving each other and loving one another. It was amazing to me how often over and over again it was talking about the church. Loving one another in the church. Bearing with one another in the church. It was over and over again and I was thinking there were certainly verses about loving others and we're going to actually talk about that next week. But over and over again, the Lord was emphasizing love one another in the church. And I thought to myself, why should that be such a big emphasis? I mean, that should be the easy part, right? Because we all love Jesus. So we should all love each other, right? Right? I don't know. (laughs) Why are you not so convinced? (laughs) Maybe you've noticed lately that the church has had a hard time loving one another. That there's been a lot of fighting going on in the church, not just this church, every church in America, the evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church, we have been fighting about everything, about all kinds of things. Believers, believers throwing hateful and angry comments on Facebook and Instagram, you know, getting back, going back and forth, arguing, arguing about everything that's been going on in the world. Leaders who should be awesome, who are doing incredible ministry, turn out to be abusers and making excuses for what they did. People leaving churches over politics and race and COVID. I don't know that we've been doing such a good job of loving one another, do you think? Not such a great job. And I can't help but thinking that the Lord is grieving in heaven over his church, the big C church that he created to reflect him that we haven't been loving each other as we should. And so we're going to get serious today because we are, are, are meant to love one another. We're going to look at what the scripture says about loving each other. And we're going to get specific to us at Gate City Vineyard, but it applies to all, all churches really. But, but for us, we need to know how can we love each other better in this church. And I just want to say before I start that I do see a lot of love in this church. So much love. That's one of the things that I have felt coming here as your new pastor is just the love that you've poured on. So this is by no means saying that we don't have any of it right. But these verses are challenging. And so I'm, I'm excited to bring, us, uh, bring them to us today. I joked with Lisa in the office this week. I said, sometimes when I bring the word, I want to have a sign that says, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> because some verses are harder to, to receive than others. But I pray that whatever is of me would fall to the side and whatever is from the Holy Spirit would sink deep into our hearts. Amen? So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. We invite you to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start with John 13. This is where Jesus really gives us this command to love one another in the church. And he says this, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus has just told them some sad news. He's saying, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And it's like he's leaving him his last bit of instruction. Like this is, this is how I want you to behave while I'm away. This is what I want you to do. I want you to love each other. It's a little bit like when as a parent, you leave your kids and you, you give them instructions on what you want them to do while you're gone. I remember a number of years ago, Paul and I went away for like a two and a half week trip. It was a long trip that we went on. It was a Journeys of Paul, wonderful uh, opportunity. I'll probably talk about it at some point. But 
it was the longest we'd ever been away from the boys. Now, my eldest son, Mark, was 23. So good, you know, pretty old, um, and, but still a 23-year-old boy. And then we had another 23-year-old boy living with us, young man living with us, who was a young man from our church, and his name was Gio. So the two of them were 23. They were going to be there. And then Nate, my middle guy, was away at school, but Nate was home, and he's 15. My baby was 15. And so I, you know, I was pretty sure that with that, there at that age, that probably, you know, everybody would get fed, the dog would get fed, the house wouldn't burn down, probably everything would be okay. <laughs> um, but don't judge me here. As a mom, I was worried about my baby's heart. I was worried about Nate's heart. That you know, would he feel loved and cared for? I talked with him every night before he went to bed. He got lots of hugs. You know, I know he was 15, but, you know, he's my baby. And so I was just worried that, like, he, his little heart wouldn't feel loved for two and a half weeks. So I took his big brother aside, Mark, and I said, listen, I know you got all this stuff you're supposed to do while we're away, but above all, love Nate. Just love him. Just make him feel loved and cared for. And, um, you know, to his credit, my son did not roll his eyes at me. He just kind of went, hmm, kind of grunted and nodded uh, in assent to what I said. And uh, so I wasn't totally reassured, but I texted Nate about five days into the trip, and this is exactly what he texted me back. He said, and I asked, how was it going with, with Gio and Nate in charge, or Gio and Mark in charge? And he said, they are doing a good job, period. No deaths yet, period. <laughs> Mark's been kind, period. I thought, okay, I can do that. Kindness is good. Have we been kind to one another in the church this past year? Have we been kind? Jesus is saying to us, he's pulling us aside. He was pulling his disciples aside, knowing he was leaving. He's saying, above all else, love each other. Love each other. And he calls it a new command, not that God has never given a command before to love one another. It's certainly in the Bible before this. But he's saying, this is a new thing we're doing here. This is a church. I'm establishing my church family, the body of Christ. And I want it to be shown that this body of Christ loves one another. But that's how we are seen. And he's leaving them in the care of each other. Will they take care of each other? Will they bear each other's burdens? Will they love each other? Will they give each other the benefit of the doubt? He's, he's leaving them with that. And his expectation of loving each, us loving each other is no joke. There are huge implications. Because did you catch what he said? He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So his whole reputation is on the line based on how we treat each other. Think about your closest non-church-going friend that you have. Somebody at work, maybe a family member, a neighbor. What would they say if you asked them, what do you see when you look at the church of Jesus Christ? What would they say to you? What, what is the predominant characteristic you see when you look at, at the church? I'm guessing the first words out of your mouth aren't, oh, I see how much they love each other. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing, right? And so it's no wonder that the world says, why should I join a church? Why should I be part of this? And so this is how important it is that we love each other. 
So we're going to talk about love today. Um, When God is talking about love in the Bible, it is not all hearts and flowers and Valentine's Day. It's pretty hard-hitting. So we're going to talk about three pretty challenging verses. So I hope you're ready. Get your seatbelts on. We're going to talk about three verses um, about how we can do this. Listen, you and I have the Holy Spirit within us. Amen? So if we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can love with the love of the Holy Spirit to one another. So let's, let's get into it. The first verse is from Philippians 2. And the first point is that love is other-centered. Philippians 2, 1 to 4, it says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I don't know about you, but I, I actually am somewhat of an introvert. You may not think that's the case, but it's true. And I used to actually dread that time after church when everybody gets up and mills about in the lobby and talks. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about there? Anybody else there? I, you extrovert have no idea what we're talking about, but introverts find that a little off-putting. It's a little bit like going into a cocktail party. You've got to make small talk. You've got to kind of insert yourself into conversations with people. It can be very, very frightening, and you're thinking in your mind, what do I say, and what do they think of me, and do I sound stupid, and like all those thoughts are going through your mind. And uh, it all changed for me literally almost in one day, when I kind of finally got the revelation of this verse, and I decided to stop looking to my own interests and looking to the interests of others. The minute I stopped thinking, what are they going to think of me? And I just started thinking, how can I show love to this person today? How can I show love to this person? Even if they're a stranger, even if they're someone I barely know, how can I show love to them? And suddenly, I began to enjoy this time, that time after church, because we can show love to each other. So many people come to church thinking, what's this church going to do for me? Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to show me good things? Who's going to do nice things for me or for my family? I have heard so many people leave churches because they said nobody reached out to me. And I get that. I get sometimes we want, we want someone to reach out to us. But Paul, the Apostle Paul has given us a hard thing here. He's saying, that's not what church is about. Church is other-centered. It's about what you are able to give to someone else. Have you shown love to someone Have you cared for someone? It's other-centered. That's hard. This is not a consumer occupation here. It's not like going to the gym or going to a show and thinking, oh, they're going to give it all to me. No, we are supposed to come here and be centered on others. That's what the the body of Christ is about. Very different. Um, What we need in order to be other-centered is we've got to get to know each other. We do have to get to know who we are. You can't grow in this relationship without getting to know each other. Just like we talked last week about the flower that needs to grow if we're going to grow that love for God, so we need to grow our love for each other. And it only happens if we get to know each other. I am working so hard on learning all your names, you have no idea. (laughs) I'm working so hard. If I mess it up, please don't hate me. But I am working hard on that because... I want to know you, and I want you to know me, and I want us to get to know each other so that we can love each other better. And, you know, I encourage you to linger. I know there's always in any church somebody who comes in, sneaks in after the songs have started, and then slips out before the benediction. I know that you're out there. I don't know which of you does that because I don't notice those things, but, but I know that some of us do that, and I want to encourage you to linger instead. 
I will encourage you to talk with some people, to get to know some people, to let those relationships start to form. Look around and see if there's somebody who's standing alone, who needs a helping hand, who wants, just could use some encouragement in this morning. And then take it outside the walls. Let's see each other outside of church. This is why we're doing life groups. This is why we have Sunday dinners. Because it's only as we begin to do life together that we can truly love each other. It was so interesting. Many, many years ago, I had a friend in our church. She was an older woman. And I only knew her through church. Like, I knew her. She was very regular. We talked many Sundays after church. But that was it. We'd never done anything together. We'd never gone for coffee. And I had an impression of her in my mind. She was a very traditional-looking old, older lady. And so I just thought of her in this, this sort of way, right? And then for some reason, I don't remember why, I ended up going to her house. And I walked into her house and it was like a museum of modern art in her house. It was beautiful. It was beautifully decorated with all modern contemporary art and sculptures and unique things. And I just was like, I had no idea. I had her as a totally different person in my mind. And just seeing that changed how I thought about her. Just to step foot in her house. How little we know about each other, right? And yet how rich it would be if we could know each other more deeply. Do you agree? Amen? Amen. It would be so rich. So let's, let's do that. In fact, I encourage you this morning to think about the church, look around a little bit, and say, who are one or two people that I want to get to know? Ask them for coffee. Decide to join a life group together. Do something to get to know one another in the church more deeply. That's the first start of other-centeredness. It's starting to enter into someone else's world. But the second is to realize that other-centeredness is the opposite of self-centeredness. Should be obvious. But listen to this passage, all the things that it says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests or the interests of others. He's like pounding this idea. It is not self-centeredness. We're supposed to be looking to others. And what does this mean? It means... Starting to walk in someone else's shoes. Hearing their heart, where they're from. Not, not thinking our opinion is the only opinion that matters. Or the only opinion that's right. It means not unfriending and shutting out people who think differently than we do. It drives me crazy. We unfriend people on Facebook because they have a different viewpoint. Oh, we need to get to know one another. And begin to look at their interests and what they're interested in and why they think the way they do. It means bearing each other's burdens, being slow to take offense, forgiving quickly, assuming the best. Churches can fight about a lot of surface things, but churches that love each other, know each other, they walk in each other's shoes, they listen to one another, they get to know each other. It's other-centered. So say to, say to me, we're going to be other-centered. Say it. Let's do it again. We're going to be other-centered. Say it. Other-centered. That's what we're going to be as a church. As a church. Amen. Let's go on to the next one. Love means, and this gets harder, not easier, okay? <laughs> that, was the, that was the easy one. This one says love means laying down our lives for one another. Jesus really ups the ante here. He says this, John 15, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one another. I told you the Bible, when it talks about love, is not talking about hearts and flowers. This is serious. Are we able to lay down our lives for each other? That's hard. 
I mean, I pray, I hope that if there was ever a reason for me to lay down my life for you, that I would do it. But that's going to have to be Holy Spirit grace in that moment, right? Because we're so self-preserving, so self-protecting. I really thought about that when we were praying for the people in Afghanistan. We don't know exactly yet what's going to happen to believers there. But they may be called to lay down their life. They may be called to lay down their life for each other and lay down their life for Jesus. We need to pray that they have courage and strength for that. There's just nothing like that. That's a different level, right? But I also think that sometimes we think of that verse, we think, well, I'm probably not going to have to die for my faith, so that doesn't really apply to me. (laughs) There are other ways to lay down our lives for one another. Am I right? There are other kind of more ordinary ways to lay down our life for one another to sacrifice our own comforts, our time, our schedules, to, to make time in our busy schedule for one another. We're not required to do anything for each other. We're free. But Jesus is saying, this is how I want the church to be. This is how I want you to function. We can choose to lay down our life. We, we are free to have any opinion we want. We are free to follow whatever, whatever we want to do as Americans here in this country. But we, God is saying, I want you to lay down your rights and your freedoms for one another. I want you to serve one another. It's interesting. He, he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, be careful, however that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. I'm thinking that the Apostle Paul likes his meat, that he likes a good burger on the grill, that he likes a good juicy steak. And I'm thinking he's thinking, you know what? There's no reason I can't eat meat, even if it's sacrificed to idols, because I know I don't worship idols, so there's nothing wrong with that meat. So why should a good burger go to waste? You know what I'm saying? And yet, what does he say here? He says, but I'm not going to eat meat ever again. I'm going to lay down that right I have to serve you, to love you. If it causes you to stumble, if it helps you in some way for me not to eat that meat, I'm going to do it. It's amazing, right? That's laying down your life for one another. And, you know... There's a lot going on in our world today, isn't there? A lot of talk about rights and freedoms and infringements of our rights as people get talking about vaccinations and masks and mandates and all of that. And I want to just put you all at ease. I'm not here to tell you what you should think about all that. That's not my job as your pastor. My job as your pastor is to bring you the word of God. And then you need to apply that to that situation that's out out in the world. And my job is also to give you a little perspective on the church. And um, when I was got thinking about this, I was realizing this is not the first set of arguments about rights and preferences that the church has gone through in its history. Have, have anybody been around the church a long time? We've, we've gone down these paths before. What have we argued about over the years regarding our rights and preferences? We've argued over worship styles. We've worshiped over how to baptize people, sprinkling, dunking, right? We've argued about what people should wear to church. Should they be casual? Should they have to dress up? We've argued over whether Christians should drink alcohol or not, or whether they should homeschool their kids or not, or over spiritual gifts, or over the color of the carpet, or the end times, or prophets. The list goes on and on and on. This is not the first set of disagreements over rights that churches are struggling with. It's not the first, and it won't be the last. We've got another election coming. God help us all. God help us all. We're always going to have disagreements about our rights and our privileges here in the church. But should we be torn apart by that? Is that what God wants us from us? Does he want us 
to fight over these things. What these passages are reminding us that while it is natural to fight for our rights and freedoms, and that's okay, there's times to discuss those things and to talk about those things. But here in the church of God, he wants us to lay down our freedoms and love one another humbly, to serve one another humbly. That's what he wants from us. He says, in the church, I would rather you put your freedom aside to serve one another in love. Just another passage on this that Paul says in Galatians 5. Yeah, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, he's saying it again, an acknowledgement. We're free. We're free. But choose to forfeit freedoms to serve one another in love. And so I just ask you this morning to just ask yourself, to let the Lord search you and say, is there a way in which I am asserting my own flesh or my own rights, or is there a way I can serve one another in love, that I can love this body more? In our current environment where there's so much arguing and so much fighting, let that not be what we're about here at Gate City Vineyard. May that not be what we're about. And it's interesting that Paul adds this line, if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. The Galatians were known, by the way, for being a uh, strong-willed and argumentative people, not unlike Americans. (laughs) But Paul's saying no matter who was right or wrong, all their arguing would destroy them. So I just want to encourage us to be a people who love each other who don't argue about things but love each other. Why? Because Jesus said they'll know you are Christians by what? By our love for each other. By our love for each other. We're going to lay down our lives for one another. Can you say it? Well, Let's lay down our lives for one another. Say it. Let's lay down our lives for one another. Amen. Amen. Let's say that. Let's mean it. The last one. Love means fighting for unity. I told you this wasn't going to be easy. These are, these are hard things. Remember, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> but there's two beautiful scriptures on unity here. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then John 17 Jesus prays this, I pray also for those who would believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays this beautiful prayer before he's just about to be let off to die. So this is the last thing he says, really, to his people. And he's praying for us, his church, the people who will believe through the message of the apostles and the disciples. Then he is saying, I'm praying this for you. What does he pray? What is the one thing he really wants? Us to be in complete unity. That's what he really wants. That's what Jesus is all about. I really want us to get this that Jesus really, 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 really wants to see us in unity. And it grieves his heart whenever we're not in unity. What are we unified around? Are we unified around a political party? 
Are we unified around a, a viewpoint of the world or of COVID or anything else? Are we unified around our race or our, our, our socioeconomic class? Are we unified around, around me as your pastor? Are we unified around George and Relisa and, and Chris as your, as your elders? No, we're not unified around any of that. We are unified around Jesus Christ. We are unified around the fact that he died for our sins and we are believers who walk with him. And so we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our unity. Nothing else. We may not have unity about anything else, but we should have unity about that. That's where our unity comes. Um, It's interesting that I read this book called Love One Another. It's by a guy named Gerald Sitzer. It was written in 2008. So a while ago, before all this current brouhaha that we've been in for the last several years, and this is what he writes back in 2008. He says, political affiliation, musical preference, national identity, and religious background have no role to play in the church. Whether we affiliate with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, whether we prefer traditional music or contemporary music, whether we admire Martin Luther King or Ronald Reagan is all of secondary importance. Not that it's not important, but it's of secondary importance. It is Jesus Christ alone who creates unity, who binds believers together, who reconciles sinners to himself and to each other. Jesus draws all believers together in him. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Jesus was incarnational. He left his space and his rights and his freedoms as as God in heaven, and he came down into our space to enter in to our world, to to be with us. And this is what we're called to do too. We are incarnational. We are leaving aside the things of the world that may be our our views and our associations and we are are entering in to life with one another. We, We sit in that space in between. An important point about unity is that it's not homogeneity. It doesn't mean that we're all the same doesn't mean that we erase our differences. In fact, I have been around a lot of churches who feel like they're doing a great job with unity, but actually they're just kind of have a homogeneous group think, right? They just all happen to be the same political party. They all happen to be, look the same, be in the same socioeconomic class. So it's easy. That's not necessarily unity. It's not what Jesus did when he assembled his followers. Have you ever looked at the disciples? This is so fascinating. He brought together a group of men that could not have been more different. You first of all got Matthew, okay, a tax collector, in bed with the Roman government. I mean, he was right in there. He was making all his money by working for the government, and he was probably, had some education, was probably pretty rich. And then you've got next, Simon the Zealot. You know who the Zealots were? They were trying to overthrow the government. They were the wild radicals. They were um, engaging in revolutionary behavior. They hated the government. He and Matthew should have been abject enemies of one another. They were like, it's like having a way right winger and a way left winger on the table together. I would love to have been a fly in the wall with them sitting around the table with Jesus. I wonder what Jesus said to the two of them. I wonder how they started to love one another. And then you got Andrew, Peter, James, and John, also completely different kind of guys. These guys were fishermen, blue-collar guys, probably not educated, just, you know, working with their hands. James and John had a small business with their dad, the fishing business, so they had a little bit of business, business uh, background there. And then you've got the Apostle Paul, who wasn't part of the original 12, but he, you know, joined the gang later. And, you know, again, you couldn't be more different. PhD guy, 
you know, he's, he's a scholarly type. He studied under the greatest rabbis. So, so bright, so intelligent, so scholarly. And this is the group that Jesus brought together. Do you think those men had some arguments and some differences of opinion? <laughs> I think they probably did. But you know what? You don't hear a lot about that in the Bible, do you? What do you hear about these men? What you hear is that they followed Jesus and they preached Jesus and they planted churches in the name of Jesus and they led churches in the name of Jesus and they talked about Jesus and they loved Jesus. It was all about Jesus. You didn't hear about the rest of the stuff, but you hear about Jesus. Amen. We should not all strive to think the same or, or talk the same or look the same, but we should all be together in unity around Jesus and preaching him, and talking about him, and showing that love. I love that in the vineyard, we call ourselves the radical middle. I don't know how many of you have heard that phrase, but we're the radical middle, that in many ways, theologically, and biblically, and in, in many ways, we sit in the middle, but yet we're radically sold out for Jesus. We're not all one type of person. We're not all one kind of class, we're, but, but we are sold out for Jesus. We're radical for Jesus. And let me just say something to you this morning. It is it is more complicated to be in the radical middle, isn't it? It would be way easier if this was a church of all Republicans. It'd be so much easier. Or it'd be way easier if it was just a church of all Democrats. It'd be way easier if we were a church of all people who thought masks were the best thing and we should wear them all the time. And it'd be so much easier if we were all a church of people that thought it was really dumb to wear masks, we should never wear them. That'd be so much easier. Trust me, it'd be so much easier. It'd be so much easier if we all looked the same, from the same, same socioeconomic class, if we all had the same color of skin, because then we would never have to deal with like talking to people that are different from us and have a way different viewpoint. We don't get where they're coming from, and why do they think that way? That would be so much easier. Yes, it would be so much easier if we were all the same. But that is not the kingdom of God. Praise God. It's not the kingdom of God. That is not where Jesus is. Jesus has created a kingdom that is beautiful in its diversity, just wide-ranging in its diversity. Read Revelation sometime, and who's gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus? It is every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every color, every, every language, every tribe, all around the throne of Jesus. That is the vision of the kingdom, people. That's what we're meant to reflect here. That's what we're meant to reflect here. It's a beautiful place, but that's a challenge. It's a challenge to us as a church to create unity and love for one another is to value our differences, to stop assuming our way is the only way or the right way, to start celebrating and welcoming each other in a new way, to listen to one another, to allow ourselves to be changed by one another, to value one another above ourselves, to be other-centered, to value our relationships more than our own opinions. Can we do that, church? Can we, can we together do that? The verse says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. We need to fight for this, church. Let's be different from most of the churches out there because most churches are struggling with this. Most churches, Sunday morning is the most segregated morning of, of, the, of the week. Shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Let's make every effort. It grieves Jesus, to let it grieve our heart when we do not have unity in the church. This is the vision. Psalm 133, love this passage. How good and pleasant it is 
When God's people live together in unity, it is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Repeat it with me. Let's fight for unity. Say it. Let's fight for unity. We're going to fight for unity here at Gate City Vineyard. Amen. So love's not easier, easy, is it? These are not not simple verses. Uh, in the same book, Loving One Another, Gerald Sitzer puts it this way. He says, when the church is functioning at its worst, worst, there is no community on earth can, that can do as much damage. But when the church is functioning at its best, there's simply no community on earth that can rival it. So let's be functioning at our best. Let's be other-centered, considering others better than ourselves. Let us, let us, lay down our lives for one another and our preferences and our rights. Let's fight for unity, that beautiful unity in our diversity. Let's fight for that. And again, I want to encourage you that I see so much of it here that is good. So much. So much love, so much caring for one another. But we have room for improvement, don't we? We just have room for improvement. In fact, just as Paul said to the Thessalonians, he said, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So let's love one another more and more this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray that you would help us to love one another. Lord, I pray that you would have spoken to us this morning about ways in which we can love even specific people here this morning. Or maybe there's people that we have either looked longingly across the room and thought, oh, I'd love to get to know that person more. Or maybe there's people that we've looked at and we say, we have always had a hard time understanding that person and, and I want to get to know them more. Lord, I pray that you'd show us how we can love each other better. I pray that you would build a unity here in our diversity. Help us to value one another, to listen to one another. Help us to lay down our lives for one another. Lord, this is a glorious Glorious thing you have done creating your church. And we are glad, so glad to be a part of it, Lord. May we be your people. May we love one another well. Amen.